the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The cross alone is our theology. This quote from Martin Luther was in a reflection of one of the Psalms, but it is a very appropriate title for our message today. The cross alone is our theology. Theology is the way that we talk about God. And so Luther's statement reminds us that whenever we speak about God and who God is and what he is doing, if somehow, some way we are avoiding the cross, then we know that we are missing the mark. Certainly not every conversation about God mentions the cross, but when the cross becomes apparent, if we turn away, if we try to deny, if we would rather not notice it, well, that's when we know that we have erred. So I want to do something a little bit different with my sermon today. I want to encourage you to write what you hear. There's a couple of spots in your service bulletin. Pages 9 and 11 have some blank spots at the bottom. And I want you to grab a pencil or a pen and pull out your service bulletin. And I want you to draw a cross in your bulletin. We'll use this cross to remind ourselves that the cross alone is our theology. Make it a decent-sized cross because we will also then use the four quadrants that the cross breaks up for us as locations to jot down a note or two. The cross alone is our theology. So go ahead and draw that cross. And in the first quadrant... I'll call it the top right. I'll call that our first quadrant, and we'll carry around clockwise. In that top right quadrant created by that cross, we recognize in our gospel lesson that Jesus rebukes Peter for having his mind set on things of man rather than things of God. Jesus was telling his disciples about how he was headed to Jerusalem to be mocked and scorned and ridiculed and that he would die and that on the third day he would rise. And Peter, instead of listening to God and exactly what Jesus was telling him in that moment, rebuked Jesus. Jesus pulls him aside and basically says, he pulls Jesus aside, Peter does, and he says, no way, Lord, no way will this ever happen to you. Peter is showing worldly wisdom. From his perspective, it would have been counterproductive for Jesus, the Messiah, the one promised of old to suffer and die. This was a wild thought in Peter's mind. And he was being sensible like us human beings are. And he thought, no way am I going to allow this to happen. I will protect you, Jesus, as if Jesus needed that. Instead, Jesus rebukes him. He says, I will face this suffering. And he does go to the cross. Jesus will die and rise because 
these are the things that God does. He does them for Peter. Jesus does them for you. These are the things of God that go counter to the things of men. So in that top right quadrant, I want you to write, set your minds on things of God, not on things of man. I'll repeat that. Set your mind on things of God, not on things of man. Paul, in our epistle, will help us flesh out the bottom quadrants of our cross. I've got another line for you to write down. This time it's a quote directly from Scripture, from Romans chapter 12, 12. You could quickly write that if you want. Or you can write this. It says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in in prayer. So in the bottom right quadrant, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. This is an exhortation. And our epistle reading today is actually full of exhortations. An exhortation is like a command without the demand. It's a strong encouragement of how things ought to be, how you ought to behave and act as a Christian with a focus on urging rather than merely saying you shall or you shall not. In essence, Paul is laying out what it looks like to live as Christians. He is giving concrete examples of what it looks like when the cross alone is your theology. And when that is the case, you rejoice in hope, you're patient in tribulation, and you're constant in prayer. We rejoice in hope because Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has given us an eternal hope that never changes. Really nothing that happens in our lives changes the hope that has come through the cross. It it doesn't change because this hope is established by Jesus for us, who willingly died for us sinners, and it remains ever before us until he returns or calls us home. And so it serves, this truth, this hope that we hold on to, serves as an anchor for our souls So that while we face difficulties in this life, we might be swayed back and forth, but we're always held fast to the rock of Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice in hope, and we remain patient in tribulation, and we remain constant in prayer. Paul exhorts us to rejoice in this hope because... When you think about it, there's something amazing about this anchor of hope. It is something that will never change for you. As I've grown older, I've recognized that pretty much everything changes. My metabolism has changed drastically from when I was a teenager. 
When I get out of bed, I'm a little bit more achy than I used to be. And some of you are laughing at me because you're like, honey, you haven't even started it. The changes are constant. Some of them are, are joyful changes. We see our children grow and mature and, and then start families of their own. And it fills us with, with an, a joy that just can't be expressed. Some tra- changes are, are tragic. Our brother or sister is, is no longer with us. Big brother's now with the Lord, or dad's no longer there to call me every Sunday. And, and those changes are tragic, and, and, and they last. We want to say it's a natural part of life, but we recognize that anytime somebody dies, it's wrong. And we feel it deep down inside, and so we mourn in that tragedy, but we have an anchoring hope that holds fast to us in the midst of that trial and as it continues on in our lives. When hardships come, we stand firm in Jesus, and when they face our community, we as Christians can call others to this anchor of hope as well. Prayer is the conversation we have with God, voicing honestly what we are feeling, the needs that we see, the blessings that we are thankful for. God responds to that prayer through his word and sacrament. And through his word, he corrects, reminds, and rejoices with us. Christians rely on prayer like fish rely on water. It's, it's all around us, the opportunity to pray. And really, as we mature as Christians, we recognize that we are in the midst of every opportunity to speak to the Lord about what's going on in this world, and that he not only listens, but responds in his time and in his way. I'd like to move to the next quadrant. The bottom right emphasized a little bit of our inwardness focus. The bottom left quadrant will consider the challenge of living with others who don't agree with you. In this quadrant, I want you to write, do not be be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So in the bottom left... Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The exhortations of the previous quadrant are easier when the world around us is not hostile toward us. They are a high calling when we consider them, but that high calling becomes exponentially harder when we are antagonized by hatred. Evil appears in many forms, but we commonly deal with evil in the sense of hate. Our government is a gift from God that largely deals with evil, that involves physical fighting and death. That is not something that we, in our context, largely have to deal with this. But to be sure, Paul is not encouraging pacifism here. If ever evil approaches you or causes harm to you or threatens harm to the loved ones that are in your care, you have the right as a Christian to defend. But we must always remember that defense does not seek 
an opportunity, which is the problem that Paul brings up in the latter half of our epistle. The evil that you and I deal with largely is hatred, and honestly, not really hatred towards us, but towards the cross, toward the truth that God has declared what is right and wrong. God has established certain actions and thoughts as wicked and sinful. And in our pluralistic society, this is seen as bigoted and small-minded. I know that there are plenty of people who like me generally, but really wish that I was more accepting of the sin that they prefer. Pastor Garcia is all right, but man, he really seems to like emphasize the Bible too much. If he could kind of hold back on some of this law from God, I'd like him a little bit more. And I'm guessing you all probably have had those same types of reactions from others. There are many who appreciate many aspects of you and your Christian faith, but hate some of it. And there are others who hate me and you because of those things, because we confess the scriptures that sin deserves death. And sadly, we can experience this hatred and become zealous for God in a way that sees this evil in others and seeks vengeance. Parents and teachers are constantly dealing with children who want to get revenge on their classmates and siblings. It's a challenge that has to be controlled at all times. Pastors are constantly dealing with adults who want revenge rather than reconciliation. Anyone in any form of leadership deals with people who want to repay evil for evil. We all deal with this on a regular basis. So much so that we, like Peter, would rather avoid the cross which offers reconciliation for the sinner and instead deal with evil on our own terms, with our own power and our own might. Because we want to gain control in this world. It's a constant temptation. When Jesus teaches us that it is God who is in control. We want to be arbiters of vengeance, large because we don't look and see God acting in our lives. We think that somehow he is absent when bad things occur. We act as if God is helpless to act on our behalf, and so we decide to take things in our own hands. So in the top left quadrant, I want you to write, Jesus is in control. An amazing thought, isn't it? Jesus is actually in control. Throughout your whole life, Jesus has been in control. For the rest of your life, Jesus will be in control. And after you've been buried, Jesus will remain 
in control. Jesus was teaching his disciples what he was going to allow happen so that they would know that he was still in control. Then Peter tried to cut him off and forbid him from heading to the cross. We have heard Jesus remind us over and over that in this life we will face hardships. Not only because this world is broken, but because this world actually hates the cross. But we want to cut him off too. And we want to avoid our crosses that this life gives us. When we do this, we are overcome by the clearest evil. The evil that does not come upon us from others, but the sin that bubbles up in our self-centeredness. Jesus rebukes this evil in Peter and calls it satanic. He also addresses this evil by going to the cross for Peter, by going to the cross for you and for me. Because once again, the cross alone is our theology. It is where God reveals his true nature and addresses sin. It shows us the cost of sin is death. It shows us that God takes death for us. It shows us that Jesus is in control because not only did he allow himself to die for our sin, but he had the power to overcome death and rise to new life for you. The cross alone is our theology its ugliness, its beauty, its apparent frailty, and its obvious power. Power not for power's sake, but power to overcome evil with good. Amen.